what I want to do before we, before we start is I want to read from Matthew 28, and then we will give our time over to the Lord. Matthew 28, verse number 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. As we come to the close of our series uh, in discipleship, we're on discipleship, I want to remind you of the importance of implementing, actually doing, what you're being taught. Uh, it does no good to come to church, sit and listen, if we don't put into practice what we are being taught in each lesson. In Malachi chapter 2, the Lord speaks to the priest saying this, And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you. And I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. My father used to tell me, listen, boy, listen to what I'm saying. He would say, listen, instead of hear what I'm saying, because there's a difference between listening and hearing. When you are listening to someone, then you are taking to heart, you are hearing what they're saying, and it's penetrating your heart, and you're acting it out. So as we, as we go through, or as we close our, our series in discipleship, and as we move on to a next series, my recommendation for you is to take to heart what you're being taught. Listen to what we're saying. Don't leave the series and just end it and say, well, that was a great series and, and, um, and I got a lot out of that. But actually put to practice what you're being taught. Um, tonight we want to, we want to conclude our series in discipleship and I pray that throughout this series you've gotten a better insight of what discipleship is and what discipleship isn't but also the importance of discipleship, the importance of disciple-making. There is no such thing as a Christian who doesn't believe in disciple-making, nor, I don't know of any Christian, who doesn't themselves desire to make disciples. We, as followers of Christ, should desire to call people to follow us insofar as we follow Christ. Now, as we close our series in discipleship, what I want to do tonight is leave you with some things to remember as you embark on making disciples, or maybe you currently are making disciples. Here's some things to keep in mind. We've learned from Pastor John and Antonio that discipleship is not a one-size-fits-all. Meaning, the way I disciple Anthony will be different from the way I disciple Oscar. Anthony is more, Anthony's schedule is a little bit busy, so I can't meet with him every day. But Mark 
his schedule's a little open, or Oscar's schedule's a little bit open. So I can meet with him every day, right? The way we disciple uh, depends on the person. However, the principles or the methods of how we should do and what we should do in our discipling doesn't change. We don't allow the practical things in our life get in the way of the methods that we have learned and we have been um, seeing from Christ and the Apostle Paul. So tonight, I have eight points for you. And these points are really a summarization of our series in discipleship. But more importantly, they're to help, they're help you to, they're, they're to help you guide or they're to provide a guide for us as we make disciples of Christ. So this will be a summary of everything that we've been talking about in discipleship. And when you hear something like, oh, I'm going to hear a summary of what I already know. What use is that? But I, I think it's going to be of some use. Okay, you can sit down. When you're ready to sit down, you can sit down. Point number one. Point number one. Eight points. Point number one. Husbands, disciple your wives and children. Point number one. Husbands, disciple your wives and children. Husbands. One time, one more time. Disciple your wives and your children. <clears throat> now, Pastor Antonio went over this, if you remember, in his, in his first, in our first few messages on family discipleship. And what he said was, the husband's main role and responsibility in life is to disciple his wife and his children. Ephesians 5. Verse 25 to 28, the Apostle Paul says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansing her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Paul commands husbands to love their wives. But how are husbands to love their wives? Does it mean that the husband is to present their wives every morning with flowers? Or does it mean that the husband is to leave uh, sweet notes on the counter before their wives go off to work? Or does it mean that the husband uh, does external things to show his love for his wife? Well, that's what the world would say how husbands, or that's how, that's how the world would define how a husband is to love their wife. And mind you, I'm not knocking those things. I do those things. However, that is not the very apex of what it means for a husband to love his wife. So what does it mean? For a husband to love his wife in a biblical scriptural way. What is, what is, what is that all, uh, detail? Paul says first that the husband is to sacrifice for his wife. The husband is to have a sacrificial love for his wife. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, the same is to be done in the relationship between a husband and a wife. The, hu- the love of the love the husband has for his wife 
is to be a visible model of the redemptive love that Christ has for his church. And the wives, like the church, is to respond in the husband's leading in faith, trusting in their husbands in leading and modeling the word of God. G.K. Bill says this concerning marriage, as husbands unconditionally love their wives and as wives respond to this love in a, man, in a faithful manner, hear this, they are actors on a redemptive historical stage performing a play before the ongoing audience of the world. Marriage it's, is, is much bigger than you and your wife or husband. You two are acting out before the world Christ and the love that he has for his church. So husbands, love sacrificially. Paul also says here in our passage that husbands are to love purely. Verse 26 and verse 27, he says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Husbands are to love with love their wives with a pure love. Paul says the husband is to sanctify his wife. That sanctification is the process of being set apart and holy by the working of the Holy Spirit. You right now are going through what is known as progressive sanctification. The Holy Spirit is setting you apart and making you holy day by day. The husband's main task in this life is to aid to their wives' sanctification process. How? By reading and modeling the word of God. By teaching them. By modeling for them. By leading them in all truth. Again, Paul draws a parallel between Christ's role and the husband's role. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. When, we go, when, we, when you go to a wedding, and, congratu- and if you, congratulations, um, Brother Jojo and, and Sister Melissa. Uh, I can't wait for that. Um, but when you, when you go to a wedding, what happens or what's happening is you have a sea of people and you have the groom standing on the altar or wherever he stands. And then you have the wife coming before the groom being presented in what color? White. Well, why does, why does the bride come wearing white? Because she's coming before her groom in white, which represents purity, which represents that she has no spot or wrinkle. That is a picture of how the husband is to present his wife on the final day. That is your responsibility as a husband to present your wife just like she's being presented to you on your wedding day. You play a, a, a vital role, a huge role in leading your wife in godliness, but also leading your wife in her sanctification process. And wives, when your husband fails in his responsibilities, model what forgiveness and what grace looks like. Don't, 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 don't give, don't take away that responsibility from your husband. If you think that just because your husband has a history of doing things wrong, doesn't mean that you totally take away his responsibility in leading you 
in all truth, in the things of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, what Paul says here screams discipleship. Husbands are to disciple their wives, but also disciple their children. Wives, you might ask, well, who do I disciple? The husband disciples me, and, and he, he disciples the children, but, but what is my responsibility in the home? Sisters, you have to understand that your first and primary responsibility in who you disciple is your children, is your kids. You are the first teacher of the child. Sisters, you raise your child up to fear and to love the Lord. You raise your child up to have faith in Christ and Him alone. Wives and mothers, you play a big role in teaching and discipling your children. And in spite of many of you who are Superman, please don't think for one second that you can do this all alone. Don't think that you as a mother or you as a wife, that no one understands or no one gets you. No one knows what you're going through. But there are many women in this church who have and who are currently going through everything that you are. You are not the only woman who has ever had to raise a two-year-old or raise a 16-year-old. My challenge to you, women, is to create relationships in the church that go far beyond the stresses and demands of being a wife and a mother. Build healthy, gospel-centered relationships with each other. And husbands, encourage that. Encourage your wife to hang out with other sisters and, and spend time with other sisters of the faith. So again, point one, husbands, disciple your wife and children. But also I want to add, lastly, husbands, if you are not discipling your children, then you have no business discipling men inside the church. If you haven't discipled your children, if you haven't yet taught or began to teach your children and catechize your children the things of the Lord, then I would suggest for you not to even disciple men inside your local church. So, disciple, husbands, disciple your wives. Wives, teach, disciple your children. And both of you do that um, and play a big role in the children's lives um, and, and, and bringing them to faith. Point two, disciple others out of your love and obedience to Christ. Disciple others out of your love and obedience to Christ. The challenge, the Christian life is a discipling life. Disciples, you are a disciple of who? Of Christ. Disciples of Christ disciple others. Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 28, we read earlier. Verse 19 and 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The command Christ gives is to make disciples. It's not a commandment that we can either choose to obey or disobey. It's a non-negotiable command by Christ. We are to make disciples, and we do so out of love for Christ. We love Christ, and since we love Christ, we would want to obey Him. And how do we obey Him? By making disciples, by doing everything that He has commanded us to do. But why would Christ command us to make disciples? Simply because what we know concerning the gospel, theology, the practical Christian living isn't meant for us to keep it to ourselves. But we must pass that knowledge on to others. And that's what you do when you make a disciple. You pass knowledge on. You teach and you model. What Christ taught over 2,000 years ago 
must be passed on. And the way we do that is through disciple making. We should want others to know Christ and live for Christ. And again, the way we do that is through disciple making. If you desire to obey all that Christ has commanded, then begin with making disciples. Not only does Christ command it, but disciple making is the biblical pattern that we see in all throughout scripture. The wonderful news about, and the wonderful news about disciple making is you don't do this alone. But Jesus said to his disciples, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The motivation for discipling others begins with our love for God. God has placed us in Christ, and we show our love for Christ by loving those he has placed around us. God's love for us should start a chain reaction. He loves us, we love him, and then we turn around and love others. John captures all of this in 1 John chapter 4, verses 19 and 21. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Discipling others, doing deliberate spiritual good to help others follow Christ, demonstrates your love for God and your love for others. John, Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. As we close this point, discipling is what we are called to do as followers of Christ. If we love Christ, then we keep his commandments. And he has commanded us to go and make disciples. We disciple and love others because Christ first loved us. And we go and we turn around and we love others. And the way we love others is by discipling. Point three, church members disciple other church members. Church members disciple other church members. Other than your immediate family and your co-workers, your local church members are the people whom you see the most often. Your fellow church members are perfect candidates for you to disciple. Friends, I see you more than I see... Uh, the family on my dad's side and on my mother's side. We see each other quite often. And the people that are sitting behind you, next to you, in front of you, are the perfect candidates for you to disciple. The same people who we share the Lord's table with are to be the same people who we share life with. As we have learned from our teaching of church government, the members of the church are responsible for one another. The whole congregation is responsible to make sure that each member knows the gospel that is not following it, that is not following or dipping into heresy. Colossians 1:28 says, "Him uh, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ." Friends, that that last sentence or that last little uh, what Paul says there That sounds more than just a high and by relationship. That sounds more than just a church Sunday and Wednesday relationship. It sounds like we have been given a responsibility to help others in their Christian walk. We have given, we've been given a responsibility to help others and to present them 
in and help them in their maturity in Christ. And how do we do all of that? Through discipling. Friends, when we think about who we should disciple, let us not look past the people in our own local congregation. Let us, when we think about who we should disciple, let us not look toward the people who look to the people who we share similarities with. You know, some of you women, oh, I want to disciple her because we go to the same hair salon. Or men, I want to disciple him because we both like the Dodgers. Friends, we sit under the same teaching. We hold to the same statement of faith. We hold to the same confession of faith. Why would we not want to look to the members of our local congregation to disciple? That, that, is, the, that is the basis and the grounds of our relationship. If you stripped everything away from what we have in common, food, movies, and all that, what will still stand and what will never change is our faith in Christ. I might move on, like, one example. Let's say me and, me and Patrick, we both like the Dodgers. And then the next, next year, I don't like the Dodgers no more. Well, the thing that we have in common no longer exists. But what we do have in common is God's word, is being both of like faith and believing in Christ and him alone. Point four, keep the word central in your relationship. Keep the word central in your relationship. We learned last week in our disciple-making, our aim should be to help others learn God's word. The highest spiritual good we can do for someone is teaching the word of God. When we make disciples, we should desire to help people want to understand more about God's word. More about God's word. We read in Matthew 28, the way Jesus instructs his disciples on how to make disciples is how? By teaching all that he has commanded. By teaching the word of God. Here we see uh, verse 20, verse 20, verse 20 of, of Matthew chapter 28. And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Here we see Christ place, places the teaching of his word as the primary aim of discipleship. Christ exhorts his disciples to make disciples. How? By teaching the word of God. And we see this example also in the relationship between Paul and his disciple Timothy. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.13, follow the pattern of sound words that you heard from me and faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, You therefore, my child, be strong in grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard me, heard me say among many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be qualified to teach others as well. Here, Paul tells Timothy to be strong in the faith. And the way Paul instructs Timothy to be strong in the faith is by holding fast to the things that he has learned from Paul. What is to strengthen Timothy is the word of God. And Paul tells Timothy not to keep that to yourself, but to pass that on to others. What you have learned from me, you go and pass that on to others. You go and make disciples of Christ. From what we see from the example of Jesus and Paul, both saw the teaching of the word of God primary in disciple making. Now, when we say that the, that when we say that the primacy of our disciple making is teaching the word of God, that looks different in everyone's life. 
That I'm, what I'm not saying, what I'm not advocating for is every single day you are to call up the person whom you're discipling and you are to meet at a park or at a house and sit down and read the word together. If you can do that, that's fine. However, this looks differently in everyone's life. This can be um, you guys meet once a week, once a month, once every two months. But what I'm saying is the primacy of your relationship should be the word of God. Everything else that you have in common is great, but that all comes under in subjection to your, the, the basis of and the primacy of what, you, what your relationship should be based on, which is the word of God. Point five, model the word. Not only should our aim of the, in discipleship be teach the word, but we are called to model the word. We don't want to help people just understand better. We want people, we want to help people live better. Helping others follow Christ includes both teaching and modeling. We're, if, if, if only we are to teach the word of God, and that is our primary, and that's all we do in disciple making, then we are not making disciples, but we are making students. We are making people who are, are, who are big-headed in the faith, who all they know is scripture and theology, but they don't necessarily know how to live out their theology. We must teach others and instruct others how to live out God's word. And we also see this example between the relationship of Christ and his disciples. Jesus says to his disciples in John chapter 15, verses 12 through 14, this is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. That someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Christ first gives a command in verse 12. This commandment, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Jesus tells his disciples to love others the same way he's been loving them. You are to love others the way I have been modeling for you how to love others. And he commands them to love the same way he has. Then we see in verse 13, Jesus teaches what true love is. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. So Jesus taught what the greatest love is, what, the great, what, what one of the greatest loves that one could show is by laying down his life for his friends. So he teaches, he commands, he teaches, and then what do we see in the life of Christ? He goes to the cross and he models the very thing that he taught in John chapter 15. Remember, he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Well, what do we see Christ do? Goes to the cross and lays down his life for his friends. So we see Christ teaching and we see Christ modeling what he's saying. So, <clears throat> what we see from these verses is Jesus commanding the disciples to love the same way he has been loving them. He teaches what true love is, and he lays down his life for his friends. And he models that, he, he, he lays down his life for his friends and models everything that he's been teaching. We also see the same principle, the same discipleship principle in the life of Paul. Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Paul exhorts the people of faith to practice what he taught them. 
Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard, and hear this, and seen me in practice, and seen me practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. If you, if you teach the word, and if you model the word, Paul says that the God of peace will be with you. When Paul carried out his disciple-making task, he did so by, with both words and conduct, with teaching and modeling. He spent time with people and put into practice everything he taught. For Paul, disciple-making included both teaching believers, but also sharing life with them. For Jesus and Paul, teaching and modeling were necessary ingredients of disciple-making. Now, how does that look in our lives? How do we implement both teaching and modeling? Friends, that's up to you. However, however you can do that in your schedule, then do that. But the, the method has been laid out for us. We are to teach the word, and we are to model the word. Why, uh, females, uh, ladies, if that means that, that, um, that you, that you invite the person whom you're discipling over as you bake cookies or as you prepare dinner, then that's how you do it. Or if you both go to the, uh, go to the, to the park and let your kids run around, then that's how you do it. But, but think of ways of how you can both teach and model to whomever you're discipling. Think about ways you can do that. Um, and there's a myriad of ways in which you can do that. Verse 6, oh, verse 6, point 6. Be available and accessible. Be available and accessible. In order to make disciples, then you first must be available and accessible to whoever you're discipling. In order to make disciples, you must be available to whomever you are discipling. That means making effort in clearing your schedule for them. That means making sure that you're replying back to people's text messages and phone calls and, and responding back to their voicemails. Show in your discipleship relationship that you are not distant in your guys' relationship. This also means to be present on Sundays and Wednesdays. Since we have a responsibility to disciple one another and look out for one another, then that, must we, that, mu- that means we must be present when we meet with one another. Hebrews 10, verse 23 and 25. Let us hold, let us hold fast to, to hope that we confessed. For he who promises faithful, and let us consider how to spur one another up to love and good deeds. How are we to spur one another up to love and good deeds? Verse 25, let us not neglect meeting together, as some have made a habit. But let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. You do not want to be the former in this verse. You want to be the latter. You don't want to be the person who Paul's talking about, who says that people have made a habit of neglecting the meeting and the gathering of the saints. But what you want to be is the latter, is that person when you meet together is encouraging one another with love and good deeds. Scripture cannot be 
any more clear about this fundamental responsibility. And coming to church is a way of making yourself available, is making yourself accessible. When church is over, and I probably will be saying this until I die, don't automatically leave. When church is over, don't automatically leave, but wait 15 to 20 minutes. Talk to people after the service about the sermon. And then after, talk to them about how their week was in prayer, or did they get a chance to talk to anybody uh, concerning the gospel? But friends, we want spiritual conversations to be normal conversations. That's what, that's what your relationship should, should have. The way we speak to each other is to be one of, of a spiritual uh, talk. We have a tendency in our relationships to think, well, if you're going to get spiritual, then you're going to get serious. But it doesn't need to be that way. Spiritual conversations are not necessarily, they shouldn't be those times when we get serious. Those should be the times when this is what we always do. We always talk about the gospel. We always talk about the word. We always talk about uh, how uh, our prayer life and whom we are discipling. Oftentimes we think that as soon as church is over, then I can get on with the rest of my day. I come to church, let me check that off, and then I can go off and I can do my own thing. Friends, the Christian Sabbath should be the highlight of your week. You work Monday through Friday, sometimes Saturday, long hours. You, in your mind, you, sh- you, you should look forward to when you gather together on the Lord's Day Sabbath. In our previous, in our, in our past life, we couldn't wait till Fridays and Saturdays. You remember the excitement that you used to have when, the, the, when Saturday used to approach and all the things that you, were, you could do. Friends, the same excitement should be for the Christian Sabbath, for the Lord's Day, for Sunday. I myself can't wait till, we, till, till Sunday and when we meet together. Because what's happening on the Sabbath is we are getting a picture and a foretaste of what we will experience in the new heavens and the new earth. We are resting on that day in Christ. And that day is to be a foretaste of the everlasting, eternal rest that we will have at the consummation of all things. As you embark on making disciples... Find ways where you can make yourself available to whoever you are discipling. Clear your schedule out. Whatever you got to do. And I know it's difficult to make yourself available outside of a church context, especially with our busy schedules. But, but friends, that's the cost of discipling. That's the cost of discipling. Discipling takes time. And at times, it will cost us to live an inconvenient life. But friends... Christ doesn't call us to live a comfortable life. This is what we are called to do in discipling. Colossians chapter 1, again, verse 28 and 29. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And here what Paul says here, For this I toil, for this very re- for me presenting others in Christ, mature in the faith, 
This very thing I toil and struggling with all energy, with all his energy, that he might powerfully work, uh, powerfully works within me. Being a disciple of Jesus means laboring for the sake of others. And it requires an investor's mentality. It requires an investor's mentality, meaning the, the time that you're putting in will be paid back at the end. When you disciple others, you don't think present, you don't think present tense. You're thinking long term. How, how, if the, how in the end, all of the time that I've spent with this person, all of the late nights, all the times when I wanted to go to sleep, but, but I had to talk to him because he was going through something, all the times when I had to study because he asked me a question that I couldn't answer, all of those times will be worth it at, in the last day. Having an investor's mentality is knowing that the return you get in discipling others is eternal. Point seven. Be transparent and teachable. Be transparent and teachable. As we make disciples, we want to teach others the word and how to model the word, but we also don't want to think that we ourselves can't learn. We want to create a, in, in discipleship, we don't want to create a teacher-student relationship, right? Whomever is discipling learns or is to learn or should be learning just as much as the person whom he or she is discipling. Don't act like you can't learn from, if we can't learn anything from the person whom you're discipling. And don't act like you have all the answers. But point others to read good books or to listen to different ministers. Or if you don't know the answer to a question, tell them, point them to another brother or sister that might know the answer. But what happens when you come off as if you know everything or, or you think you know everything? What happens is you're creating an unhealthy dependency upon yourself. That's what's happening. So try to do anything in your power to avoid that, to avoid that unhealthy dependency. After service, rather than giving your own critique of a sermon, point out things that, that, will, that, were, that you thought were, were helpful, not only to yourself, but to the person whom you're discipling. But also, after service, don't begin to start your own uh, theological discussion with whomever, and totally ignore the message you guys just heard. So when we get together, and the message that's being preached is about the sovereignty of God, don't come up to someone and say, hey, what do you think about tongues? You just heard a message from the Word. Stay in that moment. You've just, someone has just given all of their time and all of their effort, and if you've ever been preached a sermon, then you know the hard work that it is. Someone just did all of that to feed your souls. The longer you can stay with your bellies full, the better. And friends, I would also, I would also add, after service, don't automatically say, hey, what are you going to do today? Or what are you going to go eat at? Or what you got planned for the week? There's a reason why we say speak about the sermon after service, because 30 minutes from after you hear that sermon, you're going to forget it. 80% of what you just heard, you're going to forget. Guaranteed. So the longer you can stay in that moment, 
the better. Um, so be teachable. Show that you're teachable. Again, it's okay to say that I don't know the answer to a question, or it's okay to say I've never thought of that before. You know, in our reform community, we praise knowledge and wisdom, and people fail, and people are scared to say that, man, I don't know. It's, it's okay. It's okay to say, I don't know. It's okay to say, I've never thought of that before. And friends, um, this is for me as well. I, I need to be teachable as well. The elders need to be teachable as well. I learn uh, just as much from you as you are to learn just as much from me. So don't think that I can't learn anything from you. But sometimes in our conversations, you say, you tell me things that I've never thought of before or things that, that, that um, encourage me in my spiritual life. But alongside being teachable, we all also must strive to be transparent. Uh, don't be afraid of making a mistake. And don't be afraid of admitting sin. That is, the, that is one of the biggest hang-ups, I think, in a, in, a person's, in a person's life, is they do not want to admit that they are going through something. One of the signs that one is of the faith is the, your willingness to embarrass yourself. Your willingness to say, hey, I'm going through something. I'm struggling right now. I'm caught up in this web of sin. I need prayer. I need your help. All Christians sin. And admitting sin is a good thing. And when one does admit to you their sin, you have a golden opportunity. The the doors have been swung wide open for you to preach on and teach on what true repentance is. Who God is. Our gracious, faithful, unchanging God. who who, Who will forgive us. Be gracious in all of that. So friends, teach others your past life, but also your present-day failures. Teach others and allow others to learn from your mistakes. Hear this. Our Christian lives are not meant to be private, but they are meant to be shared with like-minded people of the faith. Your spiritual life and how you're doing spiritually is not your own business. It's everybody's business. And the sooner you learn that, the sooner and the easier your Christian life will be. Because you don't have to hold on to the weight of sin, but you can talk to others about it and they can help you. The Christian life is not a private life. It's a public life. It's a public life. When God adopts, when God saves you, He adopts you into a family. And He does that for a reason. He brings brothers and sisters around you to help you to comfort you, to love on you, all of those things. So don't neglect when you are discipling to be teachable and to be transparent. And lastly, point eight, involve your pastors and elders in disciple making. Involve your pastors and elders in disciple making. Take advantage of the elders whom God has given to you as a gift. Allow them to help you when you need insight of what book of the Bible you should be going through, or which authors or theologians you should be reading, or how to handle situations in life. We spoke about this last week at the race, but what we don't want to do is we don't want to make distinctions in whom we have questions and and whom we go to when we have a question, right? Right? 
Uh, we, meaning, when I have an issue, and when I'm going through something in my everyday life, then I have to go to Pastor John. Because John, John's been through it all. Or when I have a theological question, I have to go to Pastor Antonio. Because that boy be in his books. We, we don't want to do that. We don't want to have those type of distinctions within the elders or with people. Okay? That's what we don't want to do. The elders are placed in your life to care for and to keep watch over your soul. So allow them to help you in your process of making disciples. Take advantage of it. Take advantage of it. Well, I hope all of that was helpful. And I hope that God will be glorified as we embark on making disciples. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful time. I pray that your people were encouraged, challenged, and they got something out of all of that, Lord. Help us, Holy Spirit, as we make disciples. Help us, Lord, um, and, uh, help us as, as we go through this walk and as we invite others to follow us in, as, insofar as we follow Christ. Help us in all of that. Help us be teachable and transparent. Help us teach the word and to model the word. Help us have clear aims, Lord. Lord, help us in our Christian life as we make disciples. In Christ's name, amen.